morning, everybody. Hey, uh, welcome again to Faith. My name is Michael, one of the pastors on staff here. It's great to have you here with us in person. It's great to have you here with us online today as we're getting towards the end. We've got this week and next week left in our series on the book of Esther. Um, now, what we've been doing in this series, which is, you know, Esther is really a story of chaos, a queen, and the unseen king. And each week in the series, what we have done so far is we've taken one chapter, kind of unpacked that chapter, looked at, hey, what's the, the big idea for this chapter, and then how is what we're reading about that took place thousands of years ago relevant to our lives today? Today, however, we're going to do this just a little bit differently. Today, we are, instead of going after one chapter, we're going to go after three. We're going to do this this week and next week. And the reason we're going to do this is that I would contend at least um, that our next two big ideas are captured in larger sections rather than in just one chapter. They're captured in three chapter sections. And so today we're going to look at uh, chapters five, six, and seven. Again, we're going to kind of unpack them, you know, look at the big idea, and then talk about how it's relevant to our lives today. And I'm going to give you the big idea right up front. The big idea is kind of a theological one, and it's known as divine providence. Look at your neighbor and tell them providence. Excellent. Now, this is kind of, you know, nice, you know, church, you know, kind of term here. Um, but what exactly do we mean when we say divine providence? Well, sometimes the, the best way to illustrate something is to first talk about what it's not. So we'll start there. Right? When we're talking about providence, providence is not luck. Luck says that your life, your circumstances, the details that unfold, it's nothing more than chance. It's nothing more than you know, random happenstance. It's nothing more than things just, you know, you're fortunate enough they just happen that way. Or unfortunate enough that they just happen that way. Luck says there's no designer. Luck says there's no greater purpose. Providence, though, sees things very differently. Providence says there is to a designer. It's God himself. And providence says there is to a greater purpose, that God is, is working to accomplish this purpose. Now, God working in the details of our lives doesn't mean that every detail that unfolds is something that God orchestrated, that's something that God wants, nor does it alleviate us from responsibility as human beings. But providence teaches us that God is at work in the details of life, accomplishing his purposes in the world, accomplishing his purposes in the lives of his people. Now, there is a characteristic of providence that will cause us to confuse it with luck. And it's this. Oftentimes, especially at the beginning of circumstances, when life seems chaotic, when the king of heaven is hard to spot, we can sometimes wonder, is, is God really at work here? Or is, is this just dumb happenstance? Is this just blind luck? Is this just chance working itself out in my life? However, if you, if you look closely, or even better, if you have the opportunity to step back and look at your circumstances you know, in retrospect, so often, the providential hand of God can be seen. And in these three chapters of the book of Esther that we're going to unpack today, as we unpack them and then we look at this book as a whole, I'm telling you, 
the providential hand of God is almost undeniable. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray, invite God to be part of this time. We'll unpack these three chapters, look at our big idea, and talk about how it's relevant. So let's pray together. Father, just as we begin today, we want to lift up to you concerns that are near and dear to us, concerns that are, are far from us, but still we feel for them. Father, we, we pray for Joe and Jen Pellegrino as they mourn the loss of Joe's brother, as they buried him just yesterday. For so many people, there's the funeral and then they move on with life. But for those who have lost someone recently, the pain, the heartache, all those emotions, they stick around a lot longer. Please meet that family in the days and weeks and months to come. Please bring comfort. Please bring healing. Father, we pray for just the mess that is going on in the Ukraine. Father, we pray for peace. Father, we pray for Putin that you would do whatever you need to in your mercy to rein him in. Father, we pray for world leaders and for wisdom as they respond. And Father, just as we take time to unpack these passages, I pray that you would please speak your truth and your life to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if, if you're new with us today, if you haven't been with us in a little bit, uh, you missed some of the, the, the first four chapters of the book of Esther, really quickly, let me get you caught up. All right, so going back to chapter one, uh, Xerxes, king of Persia, gets mad at his wife because she won't do what he says, right? So he kicks his wife to the curb, divorces Vashti, right? But then poor Xerxes, he gets lonely. And so his, his advisors come up with this great idea to find him a new wife. They throw a Miss Persia contest, and he gets to pick out of all the girls in the kingdom which one he wants to marry next, and his chance would have it. He picks this young, beautiful girl named Esther, a Jewess, to be his wife. Now, nobody knows that Esther or her uncle Mordecai are Jews, and they ain't telling anybody. The first four chapters of the book, they do everything they can to keep it a secret. But then it comes out, right, that, that, that Mordecai is a Jew, and Mordecai won't bow down to, to Xerxes' second-in-command, this guy named Haman. And when Haman realizes Mordecai isn't bowing, that Mordecai is Jewish, Haman goes nuclear. He, he's not just going to kill Mordecai, he's going to kill all 15 million Jews living in the entire country of Persia. So when, when you know, Haman puts his plot into place. He gets an edict written. He gets Xerxes to sign off on it without Xerxes ever asking, what is the race of people I'm going to commit genocide against? And when the Xerxes you know, does this and the edict goes out, Mordecai goes to Esther. He's like, listen, you need to use your role as the queen to do something to save your people. And initially Esther says no. She's like, I, I could get killed if I do that. And Mordecai explains to her, listen, you are choosing between death and death. Yeah, you, you try and save your people, it could cost you your life. But if you don't, your legacy is going to die. 
your spirituality is going to die. Your sense of greater purpose is going to die. And so Esther realizes, you know, what what good is it going to do me to gain the whole world and yet lose my soul? And so Esther decides, all right, if I die, I die. Mordecai, you get all our people together, you fast and pray for three days, and then I'll go in. And so that's where our story picks up here at chapter 5, with Esther going in to see the king. So we read about Esther going in. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. She's making sure she looks good. She's going to remind this man why it is he picked her. All right? So she put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace. Now, here's why this is dangerous for Esther. All right? To go in and see the king is a problem for her for two reasons. Number one, if she goes in and she advocates for the Jews, it's going to come out that she's a Jew. And so now she's under the same death sentence as all the other Jews. But it's also dangerous for her because Persian kings did not like to be interrupted. They really did not like to be interrupted. So much so that if you went in without an invitation to the inner court of the king, one of two things was going to happen to you. Either number one, you were simply going to have your head cut off. And they were serious about this. You have archaeological reliefs depicting Persian kings, you know, like sitting on their thrones with a golden scepter in their right hand. And behind them, you have this hulking figure with an axe in their hand, ready to take somebody's head off, right? And so if you go in without an invitation, either you lose your head, or if you're fortunate, the king will spare your life. He'll extend the scepter to you. Now, when I was getting ready for this message, I thought, this isn't such a bad idea. I thought, we could employ this here at the offices at church, right? You know, it would would slow down interruptions. They get all kinds of work done. And I brought it to the board and they quickly shot it down. But um, so Esther, she's going to go in knowing this is the case, hoping that her life will be spared. So we read next. Come on, advance that slide. There we go. All right. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, Xerxes was pleased with her. Saw her in her royal robes, and he remembered why he picked her. And he held out the golden scepter that was in his hand. And I have it on good authority that Xerxes, under his breath, muttered, Hey, good looking. What you got cooking, right? Now, Xerxes asks Esther. He knows knows she's there because she wants something. So he asks her, he uses an expression. You know, what what do you want? He basically says, the sky's the limit. Ask me for anything you want, I'll do it for you. Nothing is too much. So so Xerxes basically hands Esther a blank check. And with with that in mind, here's how Esther responds. She says, if it pleases the king, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Now, this should create some questions. Questions like, the man just wrote you a blank check. You can ask for anything you want. Why ask him to come to a party? Why not just put your request out there? And of all the people to invite to a party, why in the world would you invite Haman? I would contend that this is a reflection Probably one, probably two things. 
I would contend it's a reflection of wisdom on Esther's part. And it's also a reflection of probably divine guidance. Remember, she spent the last three days praying and fasting. I think she is thinking, and I think God is directing her. Give me an example. Esther just walked in, and in doing so, she is basically asking the king to spare her life. So she, she, that request is granted. And that's a significant request, you, you spare my life. By throwing a party, Esther's putting some distance between her first request and her second request. And her second request is, hey, would you save my life again? And oh, by the way, would you save the lives of 15 million of my closest friends? So she's, she's got enough sense to put some distance between this first request and the second request, which is even bigger. Not only so, but simply in making the request, Esther's going to have to point out to Xerxes that he got manipulated by his second-in-command into signing an edict into law that's going to commit genocide against a whole race of people, and he never even bothered to ask who. She can point that out in the royal court in front of all his advisors. But that's like, that's like going to your husband's place of work and pointing out, to all, pointing out to him in front of all his employees how he's doing it wrong. Ladies, you can do that. It's not wise, all right? And by, by throwing a party and inviting Haman, she takes Haman out of the royal court where he has the advantage and literally onto her home court where she now has the advantage. And as she throws this party and more to come, she continues to engender herself to Xerxes. This is wise. There's probably some divine leading here. So Esther says, hey, I want to throw a party. And Xerxes, he's always down for a party. And so they have a party. And at party number one, anybody want to get what, guess what Xerxes is doing? He's drinking. Because that's what Xerxes does. Like it's a spiritual gift or something, right? So he's drinking. Haman's drinking. And Xerxes says to Esther, he's like, okay, hey, you know, I'm here. I'm at the party. What can I do for you? And, and Esther says, again, she says, if the king regards me with favor, if it pleases the king to grant my request, to my petition to fulfill my request, I want you to come to party number two. See, again, she's, she's, she's reminding him, remember why you picked me over every other girl in the kingdom? Xerxes, don't you know... I'm the girl that speaks your love language. Can I get you another cocktail, your majesty? Can I throw you another party? Yeah, sure, there's something I want. We're going to get to what I want, but I'd rather do some nice things for you. What I want can wait. This girl is more than just a pretty face. So she says, I want to throw another party, and Xerxes is down for another party. And this whole hard-to-get thing is kind of exciting. And so... He's going to go to another party. Haman gets an invite to the other party. Life is just wonderful for Xerxes. Now, Haman leaves party number one. And Haman is on top of the world. He is second in command of all of Persia. His enemies are under a death sentence. And he is the only person in the kingdom who has been invited not to one, but to two parties with the royals. Haman is flying high 
until he sees Mordecai. Walks out of the party, there's Mordecai the Jew, and Mordecai won't bow down to him again. And all of his circumstantial joy just blows away like dust in the wind. So Haman goes home, gets his wife and his buddies together, and he starts complaining about Mordecai the Jew. And then Haman starts bragging about, about how much money he has and how many kids he has and about how well he's doing at work and the parties he's been invited to. Haman's like that person who, when they're, when they're feeling lousy, they jump on social media and they post all their highlights in an effort to prove to everybody else and really themselves that they're doing okay. And that's not working for Haman. And so his wife finally gets sick of it. And she's like, listen, here's what you need to do. Those impalement poles that we have erected to, 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 you know, to execute people on, you need to have one of those put up where we can see it from our front porch. Make it a big one, like 75 feet tall. And then tomorrow, you go see your buddy Xerxes. And you get permission to execute Mordecai on a thing, to skewer him like a human shish kebab. And then when he's dead, you go celebrate at party number two. And as crazy as it sounds, this suggestion delighted Haman. And he had the pole set up. Well, that night Xerxes can't sleep. I don't know what you do when you can't sleep. People first service said, you know, I listen to your messages when I can't sleep. I'm like, thank you, right? <laughs> like Xerxes has options. He's got a whole harem full of girls. He's got things that he can do that will induce sleep. He's got things that he can do to keep him happy while he's awake. And yet of all the options that he has before him, we're told, we're told that that night, he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the records of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Read me my history. And so they, they, they read him his history, and they just happened to come across, I mean, the, the, an event that took place five years prior, where Mordecai the Jew overhears an assassination plot against Xerxes. He exposes the plot and saves the king's life. And Xerxes is like, Wait, what did we do for Mordecai? How did we reward him for that? And they're, we, we didn't do anything. What do you mean we didn't do anything? We always reward people. I mean, the, the, the joker that saved my brother's life, I made him a governor of an entire province. This man saved my life. Are you serious? We didn't do anything for Mordecai? We didn't do anything for Mordecai. Now, they had to have been reading for a long time because now it's morning. So Xerxes is like, hey, is there anybody out in the lobby? Any early birds there hoping to get a worm? And they're like, well, sure enough, Haman's out there. He won't come into the inner court without permission, but he's out in the outer court. And so Xerxes is like, hey, invite Haman in. And so Xerxes says to Haman, he says, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? <laughs> Haman, all of a sudden, he forgets all about Mordecai. He's like, who? Who could the king want to honor more than me? Xerxes, I got this, I got this. Here you go, here's what you do. You get some robes that only you have worn, and you put them on that guy. And you get a horse that only you have ridden, 
and you let him ride that horse, and you get somebody reasonably high up in your government, and, and that person's going to take that horse and lead it through the city streets of Susa, and as he does, he's going to shout at the top of his lungs, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And Xerxes says, you know what? Go at once. And do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Can you imagine the conversation? When Haman shows up at Mordecai's house and explains what he's there to do. Now this may be hard to believe of me, but if I was Mordecai, I might have needled Haman just a little bit. I'd be like, Haman, say that again. I didn't, I didn't quite get it, buddy. What was that? This is, this is what? This is what is done for the man, the king delights. Haman, you have found your calling. I don't think I could ever get tired of hearing you say that. One more time. Oh, it's music to my ears, Haman. You are so good at that, right? I'd have messed with my man Haman. So Haman spends his entire day leading his enemy through the streets of the capital, screaming this out about him. He goes home in shame, but at least he's got party number two to look forward to. So party number two comes, and Haman and Xerxes are drinking, because, again, that's what they do. And again, Xerxes says to Esther, hey, what can I do for you? What, what is it that you want? And this time, Esther answers carefully, and directly. And I say carefully because Esther needs to incriminate Haman without completely incriminating Xerxes. Esther needs to turn Xerxes on his second in command without turning Xerxes' wrath on her. So she says, she says, if I have found favor with you, remember how much you like me. Remember all these parties I've thrown. She says, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Unless you think she's, you know, like, you know, exaggerating here. She's quoting word for word the edict that Haman wrote and that Xerxes signed off on. And then she says, if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. If all they had done is sold me and 15 million people into chattel slavery for the rest of our lives, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been worth interrupting you for that. But this whole genocide thing's a little bit much. I thought you'd want to know about it. Now, the king hears this, and he's like, okay, a threat on the queen is as good as a threat on the king, and I've had enough of those already. What kind of idiot would dare try this? To which Esther says, an adversary and enemy this vile Haman. And it's like, 
all the pieces fall into place. And now the truth is revealed to Haman and to Xerxes. As, as Esther fully embraces publicly, she embraces who she is as a Jew, who she is as one of God's people. Haman knows that he is the guy who engineered a genocidal edict, who got the king to sign it, that's designed to take the life of the king's favorite wife. And Xerxes, he, he's aware of all of this and more. And he leaves, he leaves the room, goes out into the garden in a rage. And I say he's aware of all of this and more because Xerxes now realizes that he signed off on a genocidal edict without ever asking, what race of people are we getting rid of? And he's mad enough to kill Haman for it. But how does he do that? Because if he says, hey, what you did was so wrong, you need to die for it, either he has to admit he was manipulated when he signed the thing, or he's guilty by association. And even if he wants to change this thing, what's he supposed to do? Because the edicts of Persian kings are irreversible. So, as, as Xerxes is out there, trying to figure out what he's going to do, Haman's inside, and Haman's desperate. Because he knows what kind of man Xerxes is. He knows Xerxes is going to kill him when he comes back in. And so, ironically enough, Haman, who, who's going to kill 15 million Jews because this one Jew, Mordecai, wouldn't bow down to him, he throws himself down at the feet of Esther on her couch and begs this Jewess to save his life. And not only is it ironic, but it's a problem. It's a problem if you know harem protocol. Everybody up to date on their harem protocol? Right. If you're not, okay, like a couple of key foundational pieces. If, anybody looking to start a harem? This is helpful to you. Rick in the back, I see you. All right. So here's the deal. All right. If you're looking to start a harem, two key things you should, if you want to, you know, ancient Persian, you know, kind of theme to it. And number one, no man except the king or eunuch is allowed to be alone in a room with a member of the harem. And no man except the king or a eunuch is allowed to be within seven steps of a woman of the harem. So, so for, for Haman, as Esther is laying on her couch to throw himself down at her feet, that's a serious violation of harem protocol. And Xerxes, he walks back in and sees this. And I suspect that Xerxes thought to himself, well, look at that. My problems are solved. <laughs> he shouts out. He shouts out. Wait. Bring up my next slide here. Thank you. He says, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? Now, again, this is ironic. Here's Xerxes, right? The guy who in chapter 2 has state-sponsored human trafficking. But now he's all worried that Esther might be you know, sexually mistreated here. But as he's hollering this, his advisors come to him and they say, hey, you know, Haman had this great big impalement pole erected outside of his house to, to, to execute Mordecai on. And Xerxes is like, well, waste not, want not. You impale Haman on that pole. And Haman who's been messing with the bull of heaven since chapter 3 of this book, as chapter 7 comes to a close, he gets the horns. Haman, 
the enemy of the Jews, is executed on the pole that he meant for Mordecai. So, that's how these three chapters of the book of Esther unfold. Five, six, and seven. So, back to our big idea. What's our big idea again? Yeah, it's right there on the screen. If you can't get that, I don't Divine providence. Again, providence is not luck. Luck says your life, your circumstances, the details thereof, it's the result of chance and happenstance. It's random. It just worked out that way. Luck says, hey, there is no designer. Luck says there is no greater purpose. Providence says, no, there is to a designer. It's God himself. Providence says there is to a purpose. And God is working out his purposes in the lives of his people and the world itself through the details of life. But again, when life is chaotic, when the king of heaven is hard to see, it can be difficult to hold on to this idea of providence. When the king of heaven is hard to find, providence is so difficult to see. But if, if these three chapters of the book of Esther are meant to teach us anything, they are there to teach us that even in the midst of the chaos, even in the midst of those times where God is tough to lay eyeballs on, that he is still there working providentially. In fact, I would contend, if you look at the seven chapters of the book of Esther, that we have talked about from the beginning of this series through today. If you, you take a step back and you look at these events in retrospect, the idea that everything we've seen unfold is, is just, you know, chance. It just is random. It just worked out that way. That's crazy. The, the, the idea that, you know, when, it's, when, when things are chaotic, we wonder, is God really at work here? When God's hard to see, we, we find ourselves asking, has my life been placed in the unreliable hands of luck? But when you look at these seven chances, chapters, the idea that it was just chance, that it was random, that it just worked out that way, it's absolutely ludicrous. So, to illustrate this for you, really quickly, we're going to work through all these seven chapters, and we're going to do so from the perspective that it's all just luck. So, Xerxes, by chance, throws a party, and randomly his wife refuses to be his show toy, so he just happens to divorce her, and by chance the king gets lonely, and randomly his advisors come up with a crazy plan for him to get a new wife, and it just so happens that a pretty Jewish girl named Esther becomes a queen and keeps her nationality a secret, and by chance Mordecai overhears an assassination plot against the king and saves his life, and randomly the king doesn't reward him. Instead, he just so happens to elevate Haman into second in command. And by chance, Haman and Mordecai's families have hated each other for generations, and randomly Haman decides to respond to perceived disrespect by killing every Jew in Persia. And it just so happens that he gets Haman, Haman gets the king to sign off on a genocidal plan without Xerxes ever asking what people he's going to exterminate. So, when Mordecai is lucky enough to talk Esther into being willing to approach the king rather than directly asking the king for help. By chance, Esther throws a party for Xerxes and randomly she invites Haman along just for fun. And it just so happens that Haman sees Mordecai after the party has a great big spike set up to murder him on. And by chance, the king can't sleep that night. And randomly, 
his own history is read to him. And it just so happens that they read to him Mordecai's heroics, which we never rewarded Mordecai for. And by chance, Haman is outside the king's chambers in the morning. And randomly, Xerxes asks Haman how to reward Mordecai without ever mentioning Mordecai's name. And it just so happens that Haman has a great idea for how to do so. So after Xerxes has had Haman lead Mordecai through the streets at the second party, Haman is revealed as a villain. And when he's begging for his life by chance, the king thinks he's trying to rape the queen. And randomly, his advisors tell him about the impalement pole. And the king just so happens to have Haman impaled upon it. How lucky! The idea that what we have seen unfold over the course of five weeks, that this is chance, that it was random, that it just worked out that way, I'd suggest to you that's ridiculous. But if you take a step back and look at these things in retrospect, the hand of God is undeniably at work. They will tell you the devil's in the details. Esther will tell you God himself is in the details. The book of Esther wants us to see that God is at work in even the smallest moments, orchestrating the day-to-day details of innumerable lives over the course of time so as to accomplish his purposes. If today life is chaotic, if today God is hard to see, know this, the God we are learning about in the book of Esther, he's the same God today. The God who was at work in the details of Mordecai and Esther's lives, he's at work in the details of your life and mine. The Apostle Paul tries to capture this idea of providence this way. He writes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Paul says we know. We have a sense of certainty that we hold on to. We know that in what? All things. God's working together for good. Again, that doesn't mean that God causes all things to happen. It does not say that God likes everything that happened. But it says, in all things, God is working together for good. For who? For those who love him, who've been called according to his purposes. The promise, the promise of divine providence working advantageously in our life is a promise that's reserved for those who are following God. Now, if you're following God, that's great news. And if you're not, that can change. But Paul wants us to know. The writer of Esther wants us to know. No matter how chaotic life becomes, no matter how hard the king of heaven is to spot, that he is working together for good. God is at work in the job you've lost and the search you have for a new one. God is at work in your marriage that is failing. 
God is at work in the direction of your career. God is at work in the wayward child who just gets further and further from faith. God is at work in your school and all the craziness that goes on there. God is at work in the friendship that is failing. God is at work in your health even as it swirls the drain. God is at work in your finances that are struggling. God is at work in your search for a spouse. God is at work in the loved one who you have lost. God is at work in your fight against infertility. Whatever the circumstances may be, your God is at work for good in the details of your life. Like Esther and Mordecai, at the beginning of the story, that may be hard to see. But as the story continues to unfold, what we're being called to is to know, to hold on to the truth that God is at work. Knowing if we do, we'll eventually see God's providential hand. Now, I cannot guarantee when we will see that. I mean, the, the events that unfold over the book of Esther in these first seven chapters, somewhere between seven and eight years, this unfolds over. But the promise is that if we will know, if we will hold on, if we will follow God in the midst of our circumstances, we are guaranteed someday we will see. A day will come when we will look back and we will go, there, there, there it is. There it is. I could not see it in the moment, but there was God's hand at work in the details of my life. And so our job, church, is to know, to hold on, and to follow. And if we will, we will be able to look back and see God's hand. I want to invite you to stand with me, please. Before we continue in worship and celebrate a baptism together, we're going to pray. And if you're here in the room today or you're watching online today and you are struggling in the midst of the chaos, you are struggling to see the King of Heaven, I want to pray with you for God's grace, for his strength in your life, for you to know and to hold on. And if you're here today and you're not following Jesus, but you know that needs to change and you're ready for it, I want to invite you to pray with me and find the forgiveness and new life that Jesus came to offer. So let's pray together and we'll continue in worship. Father, for some of us today, it is so hard to see you right now. Help us to know that even though we cannot see you, you are not still. God, pour out your grace, pour out your strength, pour out your spirit of hope upon us that we would be a people who know in the midst of whatever we are facing that you are at work for good in the details of our life. Help us to hold on long enough to see the providential hand of God. And Father, for those of us who are here today 
We've been living life on our own without you. And we've come to a place, we've had enough. We know we need forgiveness. We know we need a Savior. We just cry out to you, Jesus. We have sinned. Forgive us, please. We cannot fix this ourselves. We put our faith in your life, your death, and your resurrection. We surrender all of who we are to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.